0: Park View, how's it going? <laughs> okay, well, uh, my name's Casey, if we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here, I'm the spiritual formation pastor, and right now I'm also the uh, campus pastor, interim campus pastor at the Lockport campus. So I want to say hi to everybody who's watching, everybody who's watching online, thank you for joining us. Thanks for putting pants on, that was, that was exceptional, so really appreciate that. I'm excited to be here for this series this summer at Parkview. We just wanted to, to kind of throw out some ideas, and I'm um, really excited about what I get to talk about today. 300 to 400, what does that number mean? That number is, by researchers' estimates, the amount of questions per day a child between the ages of three and five asks. Half of those questions are one word, why? Kind of wonder why kids ask all those questions. And the reason why is they don't come out of the womb preloaded with everything that they need. Because if that were the case, they'd come out like splitting atoms before they got their first tooth, you know? So they come out with curiosity. And they ask questions about stuff that we as grown-ups have always just assumed. And that's how they learn their world. That's how they learn about this big and beautiful world they've just come into. So from the beginning of our lives, all of us as human beings, we're wired to ask questions. We're wired to be curious. And yet at some point in our life as adults, we lose that, right? Because, you know, we're too busy. We got stuff we got to get done. So we stop investigating. We stop being curious about puzzles and questions and curiosities. And frankly, we have Google. Seriously, there's nothing you can't know now with Google. Ask Siri to divide zero by zero and just see what you get. If you haven't done that yet, it's hilarious. We have stuff that we need to discover and figure out and move on. And so we lose that curiosity. But I also think we lose curiosity because questions scare us. Because questions put things on edge. They they call them into question. They make them unsteady. And questions also show that we don't always know everything we're talking about. And goodness knows the last thing we want anyone to know about us is that we don't always know what we're talking about. And so we avoid curiosity. We avoid questions. And that's a problem. And the reason why that's a problem is because it translates into our faith. We get this picture of God as like this giant teacher in the sky with a Scantron sheet and a number two pencil. Always a number two pencil, by the way. He has this test. And if you don't fill out all the bubbles that you need to fill out and fill them out correctly, like if you fill them out all correctly and you pass, then you, you know, everything's good. But if you don't fill them out all correctly, well, you know, good luck with detention. And that's just not the way things are wired. That's just not what God had intended for us from the beginning because if you read the Gospels, what you notice is that Jesus never calls experts. He calls disciples. Disciples are people who by nature are learners. They're investigators. They ask three to 400 questions a day because they're in this big beautiful world that they don't know what to do with. And that's why I think it's interesting when Jesus says something about disciples, this is what he says. He says, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now grown-ups hear that passage and we're like, ooh! ooh give me the three easy steps to become like a little child. And Jesus says there's just one. 300 to 400 a day. You need to reclaim your curiosity if you want to know what this kingdom is all about. You've got to learn to ask questions again. What if? What if Jesus is actually more excited about our questions about faith than he is about our answers? What if Jesus is actually more excited when we have more doubts and more questions to ask him than on the times when we are certain? Because that means there's something there for us to learn. It also means that we understand how the world is wired to work. Here's one point. So Jesus in his ministry says this about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if truth is just an idea, then you can memorize it and just vomit it back up onto a test, correct? But when truth is a person... You can't just know about it. You have to get to know it like another human being. And that takes time and it takes questions. Think about when you're dating. Here's something that never made sense to me. So we find this person, we know about them, we've got some similar likes and dislikes and we we wanna go out and we wanna get to know them. And where do we go? We go someplace where we're going to eat or drink. The one place it's most impossible to have a conversation other than a dentist's chair, we go there with people that we want to get to know. Didn't our parents tell us, don't eat with your mouth full? Don't talk with your mouth full? Don't eat with your mouth come on. (laughs) Our parents told us that, and yet that's where we form our best relationships. So how are you? Where'd you go to school? (laughs) See, if the truth is a person, then we have to get to know that person. And one of the great mysteries and great beauties of God is that he became a person so that we might get to know him. The scripture says that Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Why? So that we could say this is what the truth looks like in our messy, messy neighborhood. The world of Jesus was messy just like ours is. And he says, do you want to know the truth? Here it is in the midst of your messy, messy world. Now, of course, today we can't have dinner with Jesus. That would be awesome, but we can't do that. But he left us a promise that's very helpful, and this is what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I want to encourage you today. Jesus is looking for kingdom curious kids who are willing to ask questions 300 to 400 a day to get to know This mysterious fleshly God who lives in the present in the midst of a messy world So what does that look like? Well, I believe very simply that faith is impossible without curiosity we don't take risks we don't step out unless we're curious about what may happen next faith itself is impossible unless we begin to ask some of those critical life questions so how does that work well at the beginning of Jesus's ministry he breaks this open and he tells his listeners listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 4 he says repent From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this word come near can either mean breaking in or is right around the corner or is at hand. And his hearers would have heard two things. Number one, repent, which just means change your mind. Doesn't mean bang your head on the floor because you're sorry for what you did. It means change the way you think about the world. And the second thing he said was the kingdom is breaking in, which means everything you've ever dreamed of is coming true right now. Now think about this, if everything you had ever wanted, if everything you had ever dreamed of is coming true in the present moment, wouldn't you change the way you deal with the world? Wouldn't you think about your relationships, your addictions, your struggles differently if everything that you had ever desired was now beginning to come true? You would change your way of thinking about the world. And so when people heard this from Jesus, they said, how is that happening? And he said, that is an excellent question. Let me show you with my life what that looks like. In the second century, there was this group of people, these craftsmen, at a place called the Isle of Lesbos, and they used to make these giant marble columns. Now, have you ever seen the marble columns, they are round, and so they would build these columns, but they ran into a problem. The only unit of measurement they had to use was a ruler. If you are making a round column, it is very hard to use a flat ruler. And so they began to say, this isn't working out for us. Maybe we should do something different. And everyone around them said, "No, no, 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 look, the ruler is it, man. That's the only thing, like that's what you've got to use. And they said, well, what if it's not? So they began to make long strips of leather and they began to measure them off and make little marks. And so they could wrap them around the columns to make sure that they were the right size. And so several generations later, that led to the tape measure. Why? Because some guys addressed a problem in the world with some very curious questions and said, maybe there's a different way of going about this. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is breaking in, he's saying to all of us who are dealing with a real and messy world, you've been thinking that either you use a ruler or nothing else. Maybe there's another option you haven't thought of. Are you willing to be a kingdom curious kid and ask the questions about what God might be doing with this kingdom breaking in? and to ask this very important question. If the kingdom of God is really breaking in, what else is possible? What are we missing? What else might happen? I wanna share with you two stories. From the book of Mark. And these I think illustrate this really really well. Now in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is teaching. And he's, he's just confusing people like crazy. Because that's one of the things Jesus was good at. And so he was confusing them to make them more curious. And so his teachings start to break that apart. And the last teaching he gives in Mark 10. Before what we're about to talk about. He predicts that he is going to be arrested. And he's going to be executed. And this is the third time he said this. In that moment we meet two guys. James and John. James and John are well known in the history of the church. They're these <laughs> historical figures, but they had a nickname Even back in Bible times, they had nicknames not like Slugger or Champ or anything like that. They had nicknames and theirs was Boangerous That's a pretty good nickname, right? Do you know what it means? It means Sons of Thunder Just take that one. If you don't have a nickname that would take that one. That one's yours the Sons of Thunder now Because they have that nickname, you don't expect them to be meek and mild and gentle guys. No, no. They are forceful and upfront and boastful and big personalities. So the sons of thunder, the thunder boys as I'm going to call them, they come to Jesus after this teaching where he says, I am about to die. And this is what they said. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I love this. It's basically, listen, since you're about to kick the bucket and all, um, we've got some stuff we'd like to get done first before all that happens. Like, do you have friends like this? Like, I'm really sorry you're in a bad spot, but I kind of need 20 bucks. Could Could we do that? They come to him at this moment and say, before all this happens, there's something we want from you. Now, we look at that and we chuckle, but honestly, if they believe Jesus is who they believe he is, this king who's coming with the kingdom, then why not ask? Like if Jesus came today to you and I, would we give him like our B-list requests? I'd like to be a little taller and not have a cold. No, you go for the big stuff because Jesus can handle the big stuff. And so they come to him and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And I love Jesus' response. I'm so curious about what he might say. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. Best question ever because Jesus opens up the door to a dialogue think about that what would you say if Jesus came into this moment this morning right now and said what do you want me to do for you what would you ask him for what would be possible in that moment he comes to James and John they come to him and they ask we want you to do anything that we ask you to and he says what do you want me to do for you And their response is awesome and it makes sense with their personality. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They want to be vice presidents. (laughs) Because really, if you're asking, you might as well shoot for the top, right? The Thunder boys wanna be second and third in command. Actually, it'd be more like 2A and 2B because they'd fight over that too. Because they thought if this is going to be a kingdom, the way kingdoms work is they work by power. And so if there's gonna be a power move, we want to be a part of the power. And most of us have grown up or been taught the way you deal with things in your life is you deal with it through force and through power. So James and John are just saying, listen, if this is what's going to happen, we want to be a part of that. And so when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He's inviting them into this conversation and he's about to teach them something very powerful, but just not what they expected. Because here's Jesus' response. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's saying, listen, there is going to be blood spilled. I am going to die. This is not going to happen like you think it's supposed to happen. Power is not how this kingdom works. You're a bit mistaken about how things are actually going to go. You need to change your minds because, this is what Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, come and ask me for whatever you want, but just understand, this may not turn out like you think it should. You may think the world is run by power. I'm going to show you a different scenario altogether. And what he does is he helps teach them one key lesson about curiosity, and that is this, curiosity makes us humble. The way James and John had been dealing with the world gets totally dismantled when Jesus says it's all about servanthood. Because they thought the three of us, me, you, and Jesus, we're going to take care of business. And Jesus says, I'm going to change you from the thunder boys to the servant boys. And that's how this is going to change. He rearranges their brains and then he teaches them more about it. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart. He has to teach them how to be humble. How to say if the kingdom is breaking in, is it possible that we don't have to work by force? but that we can be gentle and humble and become servants and change the world that way. And then he models it for them. Paul says, and being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He said, your greatest power is to serve others and you don't even have to worry about death anymore. It no longer has any force. We have to be humbled to realize power isn't the way to deal with the world. As a matter of fact... Our own willpower is pretty useless until we're humbled enough to know that we need to use it. Addicts do not find healing by force. They find it by admittance of their own humility and weakness. James and John, as far as they were concerned, they were the thunder boys. They had no weaknesses. And Jesus said, here's one. You got to change your mind about this. The other thing humility does is it teaches us that more is not always a good thing. More of anything is not always a good thing. In my home state of West Virginia, there was a man a few years back named Jack Whitaker. Jack won $83 million in the Powerball lottery. That's a a lot of zeros. And so he won this money and then the next week there was a news story about him that said his car had been broken into in the parking lot of a strip club and someone had stolen a briefcase that held $545,000. And I'm like, why leave $545,000 in your car? Like I don't leave quarters in my car. If I had 545, I wouldn't leave it in the back of my car. And so people asked him, why did you leave that money in your car? And he said, because I can. And then the next week, his wife was found dead of an overdose. Then the week after that, his son was found dead as well. The week after that, his son's girlfriend mysteriously disappeared. And then he became embroiled in legal troubles and financial troubles. Before that, he was just a very humble, small businessman. And now his life was plunged into ruin. So let me ask, if you're praying for God to help you win the lottery, is that the best thing that could happen to you? Maybe more of anything, money, power, isn't what we need to handle our lives. Maybe what we need to do is to be humbled a bit. I know what scripture says. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But if the kingdom is breaking in, maybe our definition of good needs to change. We get our minds changed when we repent and start thinking differently about the world. Maybe force isn't the way that this is all going to get done. Second story is very interesting to me. Jesus and his disciples are leaving a place called Jericho. And Jericho is this very wealthy, very historically powerful city. And they're walking down the road out of the city. And this is what the text says. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Understand something. This guy had no name. His name basically was the son of Timaeus. He was only known by who his daddy was. If you were a younger sibling who had an older sibling that went to the same high school, you know how this works, right? Oh, you're so-and-so's younger. Like, you have no identity. Like, you're so-and-so's younger brother slash sister. Like, it just rips your heart right out, doesn't it? All that we knew about this guy is that he was the son of someone. He had no name of his own. He had no identity of his own. Because at the time, people who were blind or physically disfigured were considered abandoned by God. And so the only thing he could do in his life was to beg. So he sat by the roadside and what he would do is he would take his cloak, which is like an outer jacket, and he would lay it on the ground in front of him and he would sit down and he'd wait for people to pass by and drop money on his cloak. Like you would with a street performer who had an open guitar case and you drop your money in there. People would walk by and drop money on his cloak. And so he's sitting there beside the road begging, and he hears that it's Jesus. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's very important. Bartimaeus, the no-name beggar, has the same belief that the Thunderboys did, which is, if Jesus is the king, then it's best to go to the king to ask him for what I need. He had this deep curiosity and he banks so heavily on it that he yells above the crowd, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, which is hard to do if you're blind. He's calling you and throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. We have to realize is he tossed his cloak with everything that he had begged for and everything he had earned that day on it. And so the sure thing of what he had captured and gathered that day went into the wind and his whole focus went on this new king, this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of David, and maybe, just maybe, this king is one who can do something for me. I'm willing to give it all away for that. And here's what I love. He comes up to Jesus on the road and the crowd's kind of silent and he stands in front of him and Jesus says this, what do you want me to do for you? The same question he poses to his inner circle of disciples, Jesus posts to the no-name beggar. What kind of kingdom is it where the inner circle and the outer circle get the same treatment? Now I imagine Peter at this point, because he usually does this kind of thing, would slid over to Jesus and gone, um, he's blind, so maybe start there. It's just, it's a, it's a thought. No, it's just me. But Jesus offers him this question just in case. Maybe it's not the blindness. Maybe that's not what you really want from me. But Bartimaeus says, I want to see, can you handle that? And I love what Jesus says back to him. He says, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You might think Bartimaeus had nothing to risk. He had everything to risk, but he banked it on this curiosity that maybe this king and this kingdom is the kind of place where no-name beggars can go and live. And so one thing we learn here is that curiosity requires risk. Curiosity requires risk. Sometimes we have to throw our cloak aside. Sometimes we have to cast aside our ways of learning and dealing with the world and risk that maybe there's a different way. cause of the kingdom of God breaking into the present. Maybe there is a different way for us to go forward. Now, you've got to realize something about Bartimaeus. Up to this point, he has made his living by begging Bartimaeus has got to get a job now. It's hard to be a blind beggar when you're not blind anymore. He's got to go support himself. Like Jesus miraculously saved him to a very normal life. Sometimes I wonder, I I love that we talk about great testimonies and great powerful stories, and we should, we always should. But I just wonder if sometimes we get a little bit caught up in that because most of us are really saved to a very normal life. We'll have the same family and the same job and the same kids and the same neighbors and the same neighbor's dogs. And so what God is calling us to is enter into that differently. There are people in my life who have had massive medical miracles. They've had organ transplants. And the next morning they've woke up and gone, "Um, okay, so I got to go to the bank and we need stamps. And um, what if the best thing that could happen to you and I is for God to bring us into a very normal life with simple meals and quiet moments and good, sweaty, hard work. What if that is the greatest vision for our lives that we could ever have? I grew up under a pastor named Sonny Williams. What a great name. Isn't that a preacher name? Now, I grew up in the South, in southern West Virginia. And when, when we preached, like, this would be considered a talk where I come from. Preaching in the South, you have to actually sweat for it to be real. And uh, this guy was tall and red haired and his face would turn purple, and he would get to shouting. Get to shouting is how we say it. He would get to shouting, and he would get to kicking, too. He would, woo, like that. If Tim or I ever do that, just send us an email. So he would get to shouting and kicking. And so he was this kind of guy that just had this big personality. And when he got on something, he got on it. And so he decided that right down the street from us, uh, there was a strip club. It's two stories of strip clubs. I don't know. Anyway. Um, he decided he was going to go and take this place apart by convincing each one of the entertainers, the dancers, to, to leave that life. And so he went in and he started talking with them and he said, I'm, I'm, we're going to get you an education and we're going to get you your diploma or whatever you need and we're going to get you a job. And they looked at him ever so kindly and said, oh, pastor, I make more in one night than I would make an entire month with a high school diploma. Are you going to feed my kids? Are you going to take care of my bills? And so the whole project kind of fell apart because until we're convinced that the normal of the kingdom of God is better than what we have been doing, we'll never be curious about Jesus. Until we're convinced that there's something bigger, there might be a third way, it's not dance or be impoverished. Maybe there is a third way through the middle that we can get into. Because that's what real life is about. Real life is not about the peaks and the valleys. Listen to what Paul says, he gets this. He says, I know what it means to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength." He's describing our lives, isn't he? Like sometimes we're, th- we're flush, and sometimes we're thin, and the question is, can we be okay when we're not okay? That's what contentment is. Is it possible? That there's not just two ways of living, either flush or thin. Maybe there's a way through the middle where we can be content no matter what happens. If the kingdom of God is breaking in, is that possible? That's a very good question that we probably need to start asking ourselves. Because most of the teachings of Jesus don't make any sense if we only see one way or the other. For example... He teaches us, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Most of us break out in hives when we hear this because the only way we know how to deal with the world is either you beat up on your enemies or you become a doormat and you let them continue to hurt you. Jesus is just telling us the what. He's not telling us the how. The curious and beautiful question is, how do we love our enemies? What if God will take care of us and begin to heal that wound. But we can establish some boundaries, and they don't have to come over for dinner because I'm assuming most of our enemies are family members, so just <laughs> let's go with that. They don't have to come over for dinner. They don't have to, You don't have to send them a Christmas card. You don't have to be bosom friends with them. You can establish some boundaries. But in the meantime, you love them from afar and God begins to close that wound and to bring healing. And we stop holding them hostages in our heads. At, let me ask you a curious question. Is any of us have a better quality of life because we have a higher number of enemies? Maybe it's time for us to consider whether we've been going at this from a crazy direction. And maybe it's time to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is inviting us to this very curious journey of humility and of risk, but also one more thing. What we learn from these guys in this this text is that curiosity is a great and mysterious adventure. A great and mysterious adventure. Here's why we know that. We don't, we don't ever hear what happens in scripture to Bartimaeus. He kind of disappears. We do know what happens to James. James is condemned to death by a Roman emperor. And he is led by the arm by a Roman soldier to a place where he would be beheaded for his faith. It's kind of an eerie parallel today. And James, as he is being taken to be executed, has such an impact on this Roman soldier that he decides right then and there to become a Christ follower. And so as James lays his head on the executioner's block, the Roman centurion does the same. And they're both beheaded simultaneously for the sake of the gospel. John, the other thunder boy, lived to be 90 and was a huge leader in the early church. Why do I bring that up? Because both of these guys asked for power. One was beheaded, one lived into his old age in exile and solitude. These are amazing stories. But we also have good stories today. There's a man named Shane Claiborne. And Shane uh, worked at a bunch of really big churches and was uh, in, in ministry. And one day he got convinced by this question that said, what if Jesus meant everything that he said? It's kind of a neat, curious question. What if Jesus actually meant what he said? And so it took him on this journey to a bunch of different places. He ended up in Iraq the day after the shock and awe campaign a few years back. And he was working at a hospital treating children who had been struck by shrapnel. He then found his way to Calcutta where he worked with Mother Teresa and he sat and sewed garments with lepers. And then he found his way back to Philadelphia because if you go to Iraq and then Calcutta, you come to Philly. And when he got to Philly, he established himself in an inner city neighborhood that's fraught with violence where they averaged one homicide every day. And they began to ask some questions. Where are all the guns coming from? Why is all this violence going on? And then one day it finally broke for him when a 19-year-old young man was gunned down on the front porch of the Simple Way, the community that Shane had founded. And he said, this has got to stop. Now, for most of us, we look at that issue and say, well, there's a couple of different things. There's law enforcement issues. There's, there's, there's gun issues. There's all this stuff. And both of those are really frustrating. So Shane began to ask the curious question, what if there's a third way? What if we've been using a ruler to solve a problem that we need a tape measure for? And so what he did is he put the word out to his neighborhood and he said, I'm asking if any of you are willing to give up your firearms so they don't fall into the wrong hands. Bring them to us at the simple way. And he got together some blacksmiths and some welders. And as these weapons began to come in, he took very seriously the scripture from the Old Testament that says God's people will beat their weapons into plowshares And they took AK-47s and they made them into shovels. And they began to use them in their community gardens. They made them into tools to grow food rather than to take life. But listen, this isn't a gun control issue. Don't email me about gun control. Email Tim about gun control. That's what you should do. This isn't about gun rights or ownership. This isn't about any of that. It's just saying maybe if the kingdom is breaking in, we're looking at things the wrong way. Maybe there's a third option that we haven't considered for our communities, for our world, for our addictions, for our marriages, for our jobs. Maybe there's something we aren't finding because we aren't asking the right questions. We aren't saying three hundred to four hundred a day if the kingdom of God is possible. If it's breaking in, what else can happen? Maybe we're right on the precipice of transforming the entire world and all that's holding us back is saying, does it have to be A or B? What if it's C? What if Jesus is calling us to a third way of being? What if Jesus is calling us like James and John to be humbled, to say the way of dealing with the world through power, is just not the way we need to do this. Maybe he's calling us to be like Bartimaeus and to cast aside our cloak and to take the risk and say, maybe there's another way to go about doing this. I don't know. But all I know is there's one question I can ask you today that is most important. Are you curious? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the stories you've given us of James and John and Bartimaeus, the Thunder Boys and the no-name beggar. And I'm I'm thankful your kingdom is big enough for both of those. Whether we're proud and need to be humbled, whether we are on the side of the road with no name and we need to risk the possibility we might have a normal life in the kingdom. Wherever we are and whatever might be happening, make us curious today. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.